Hi there, family. Great to be here with you all. You know, in the last two weeks, since we can't go anywhere in lockdown, Felicity and I have started watching a new series called Nine Perfect Strangers. And it follows nine people as they all go to this swanky wellness retreat. And they're a real mixed bag from all sorts of backgrounds, but they all have this one thing in common. They're all carrying with them the effects of some sort of trauma that's fractured their lives, their relationships, and their identities. You see, some have lost loved ones and others have failed careers. Some come to the retreat with broken bodies and others come in dying marriages. And yet all are pinning their hopes to varying degrees that this retreat will help them to stitch back together lives that have been torn apart by suffering and sickness and sin. And as I was watching, I was wondering, what are the things that we put our hopes in to sew back together the torn and tattered pieces of our lives? You know, in many ways, we're more aware of our frailty than ever. Increasingly, our society is sending us the message that it's okay to not be okay. And I think admitting this is a good thing, to admit that we don't have it all together. It's a great place to start. And it would be unfair to expect that given all that's happening in the world right now, everything that we're living through, that we would be anything but okay. This week brings us to the end of James's letter. He spent the last five chapters imploring us to pursue a single-minded, a wholehearted, Christ-like maturity. He's warned us about the many dangers that lurk within and around us. And he's called us time and time again to a faith-filled action. And today, in the closing paragraphs of James's letter, he addresses three fundamental problems that we face as humans living in a fractured world. Suffering and sickness, and sin. And as we heard last week from Campbell, that when in suffering, James wants us to persevere in hope because Jesus assures us that we're not alone and that he will return to make all things right. And today, James wants us to learn to speak to God and to others with honesty about our suffering and sickness and sin through confession and prayer. And so today, James wants us to do three things. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to pray for healing. And finally, to confess our sin. To be honest, to pray for healing, and to confess our sin. And so today, our reading begins by asking some questions. Is anyone among you suffering or in hardship? Is anyone happy? Or is anyone sick? You see, whether things are going really well or they're really hard at the moment, James wants us to begin by seeing where we're really at. But James doesn't intend that we would stay in the reality of our own suffering or sickness or joy alone. No, in everything, we are meant to relate to God and to one another. And so he says in verses 13 to 14, let the troubled pray to God, let the happy sing songs of praise to God, and let those bedridden with illness call for the leaders of their community to come to pray over them and to anoint them with oil. See, as with everything that James has said in his letter, he intends that all of these actions would take place in the context of life in God's family. If you look to verse 16, the word confess there could be translated literally as speaking out the truth to one another. 
And that's exactly what James wants us to do here as a starting point. When faced with suffering or sickness or sin, James wants us to be honest and to speak out the truth to God and to our brothers and sisters. Family, we've got to remember that James's entire goal for the Christian life since chapter 1 has been Christ-like maturity. The goal has been lives of holistic integrity. And seeing and speaking with honesty has been a recurring theme in the book of James. But I think there are at least three barriers that limit our ability to speak honestly about suffering and sickness and sin. See, firstly, I think there's pride. There's this attitude like the boastful person in chapter 4. It's the person who thinks and says, I'm fine. I'm perfectly capable of keeping it all together. After all, I'm strong. I'm smart. I'm admirable. And related to this, the second barrier is actually the fear of shame. It's the person who clings to the belief that being anything less than put together means that you are weak or foolish or unworthy. And the third barrier to genuine, honest speech is the tendency in some pockets of our society to measure goodness by transparency and vulnerability, whether we're measuring organizations or relationships or even ourselves. And you might be sitting there thinking, hold on, John, aren't you saying that we should be vulnerable? How could doing the thing that you're saying is the solution be a problem? Well, I think the problem comes when we idolize vulnerability, when it becomes unhealthily attached to our identity, to who we believe we are. See, it becomes a problem when being someone who is vulnerable and honest just becomes another way for us to measure up, another way for us to find or to prove our worth. And this is not telling the truth in the noble sense. It's using the truth for selfish gain. Consider how you might see this played out in your circles, in your conversations or on social media. And all three ways, be it pride, fear of shame or idolizing vulnerability, all three are problematic because the weight of your own worth is placed solely upon your own back. And live by any one of these ways and you will be crushed because the facade of strength will ultimately crack because suffering and sickness and sin are weights that we cannot bear alone. Live under the constant fear of shame long enough and it will erode your God-given identity beyond recognition. And trying to bring about, and trying to bring about ultimate wholeness by practicing vulnerability, well, it'll show itself to be empty. Because in and of itself, vulnerability cannot deal with the brokenness of the human experience. At best, it can only name it. But there is another way that James points us to, a way in which we can begin to honestly speak and deal with suffering and sickness and sin, a way in which we can begin to see real transformation in our lives and in our community. And so James tells those of us in trouble to pray to God. He tells those of us who are happy to sing songs to God. And he tells the sick among us, 
to call for others to come and to pray on their behalf in the name of the Lord. James tells us that the way to see suffering and sickness and sin transformed is to seek and to trust someone stronger and better than ourselves. To seek and to trust God. But how does looking away from ourselves and toward the God of the Bible actually help us to be truly vulnerable and to speak honestly about our condition? Let's take a minute here and just consider why do we shy away from honesty? Why do you shy away from honesty? Or why do you overcompensate with a fake vulnerability? Deep down, isn't it because we're afraid of shame? Afraid of not measuring up? We mask the truth because we're driven by pride or fear. And we can even try to convince ourselves and convince others that we're not ashamed of who we are or what we're going through. And we put our brokenness on show to prove a point. But looking to God helps us because unlike us, God is unafraid of the humiliation and shame of not being enough. Because he can and he has worked to piece back together everything that is broken. You see, when we look to the God of the Bible, we see a God who made all things out of the overflow of his all-sufficient love. And this God made all things healthy and harmonious and whole. But as sin entered the world, as humanity chose our own way to wholeness instead of trusting in God's goodness, sickness and suffering and death became a reality. But God being God... He wasn't caught off guard, nor was he too weak to do something about it. And instead of demanding that we get ourselves together, knowing that we are powerless to do it for ourselves, God, in Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he took up our pain, all of our sickness and disease, and he bore our suffering, all the brokenness that's caused by sin and death and the nails that pierced his hands and feet were for our transgressions and his body was crushed for our iniquities. And Jesus' death upon the cross was nothing but a complete and utter public humiliation. The soldiers, they hurled abuse upon him as they beat him. The crowd, they mocked him as he was paraded through the city. The religious leaders challenged his very identity as he hung there. And they stripped him naked and left him there to die without an ounce of dignity. And then as he hung there, he was ultimately rejected by his father. Because he bore upon himself the totality of our sin. And all of the humiliation and shame and rejection that we are so afraid of, Jesus bore and he suffered for us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed.
So when we look to him, when we look to the God of the Bible, we don't just see a God that is strong enough to do something about our condition, but we also see a God who is willing to suffer humiliation and shame so that we would know his peace and be healed. And he did this so that we would never be rejected or ultimately shamed again. He did this so that we could be made acceptable before him. He did this so that our sin would never stand again between us and him. And he did this so that we could know that we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dream by seeing and trusting in what Jesus has done. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us and to testify and speak the truth to our hearts that even though we are more broken than we could ever admit, we are infinitely more loved in Jesus than we could ever dare imagine. Your honesty and vulnerability will always be restricted if it's dependent upon your own ability to perform. But if you grasp how infinitely loved and accepted you already are to God because of Jesus, then you will be able to speak with honesty and vulnerability completely free from the fear of shame. And rejection because he was humiliated and rejected for you and so today James wants us to begin by being honest and he also wants us to pray for healing and it's important that we have a broad biblical vision for health and healing And so if we look to the first pages of the Bible, to the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, we see there that there is an absence of suffering and sickness and death. We get this picture of the good world that God had created and that he had intended to be. And this is what the Old Testament describes as shalom. This picture of flourishing in which all aspects of creation are in harmony. All of our human experience, every creature, every community, every ecosystem, all living in harmony with God. And this is the peace or the shalom that Jesus' punishment purchases for us in Isaiah 53.5. It's the holistic restoration of the harmony between all creation and God. And if we look to the word healed in 53.5, it's this Hebrew word, rafa, And it's this stunning word picture of someone stitching back together a torn garment. And throughout the Old Testament, God is called the God who heals. He's the God who is sewing all things back together and making them whole again. And we get this idea of wholeness and the God who brings wholeness um, carried over into the New Testament. See, when James is talking about someone being made well in verse 15, he's using the Greek word sozo. And it's the equivalent to the Hebrew rafa. See, both of these words describe being made whole as something that God is doing now, as well as something that he will ultimately do when all things are made new. And family, as God's people, we live in the tension and the complexity of the in-between. We live between the cross and the culmination of all things. 
We live in a time when a cure has been found and God is in the process of administering it to everything and everyone under his dominion. See, sickness is something that tears apart the wholeness that God intended. And so that's why James tells us to pray for the sick in our community. And I really want to highlight this as well, that James points us to see that the source of healing is neither in particular people nor in particular practices. The source of healing is God. See, we can easily confuse the means for the source. But if we look to Jesus's earthly ministry, he didn't have a consistent method of healing. Why? Because he himself was the source of healing. And so as we turn back to James chapter 5 and verses 14 to 15, he has in mind people who are bedridden with sickness. And that's why it's necessary for them to call the leaders of the church to come and pray over them and anoint them with oil. But note this, the elders are to pray and anoint the sick in the name of the Lord. They pray with this trusting faith in God. See, the anointing with oil was a consecrating sign of trust in God's faithfulness. And we shouldn't confuse this with prayers and practices that presume to know and fully understand God's exact will for a specific situation. And we shouldn't confuse this either with prayers and practices that try to force God's hand into action. No, James says, and what he's teaching is that this is a faith and a practice and a prayer that trusts in God's goodness and his power and that trusts that through Jesus Christ as the healing agent, all things will be made whole again. And so if God chooses to heal and to raise the person up bodily, then it will be for his glory. And it will also benefit the recipient of the healing because it will strengthen their body and strengthen their faith. But in addition to this, it will also bring greater health and strength to the community too. Knowing that we have a God who hears and answers prayer with both mercy and power. But if God chooses not to heal in that moment of prayer, then it will also be for his glory. His family, God is working beyond what we can fathom. He's not only just piecing back together our broken bodies, but every single aspect and facet of creation, the social, the emotional, the communal, the economic, and the spiritual brokenness are all being healed in Jesus. And God can use unanswered prayer for healing to remind and to reassure the sick person that they are not forgotten or forsaken, but that they are intricately woven into the story of God and his people in Jesus. And unanswered prayer gives the opportunity for us, the community, the praying community, to embody God's enduring faithfulness in hardship as we show up. And care enough to continually ask God to make a difference. Ask him to bring healing. All the while reminding the sick person of their identity and hope in Jesus. 
And so when James hits verse 16, he zooms out from that specific situation and he encourages all believers to confess their sin and to pray for healing because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so we've got to ask, who are these righteous people? Well, he goes on and he says, well, the righteous people are regular, ordinary humans, just like Elijah. Humans who trust in who God is. People who trust in what he has done for us in Jesus and people who trust in who he's made us to be and trust that he is making all things whole. These are the righteous people whose prayers are powerful and effective. You see, and when we understand the Bible's vision for health and healing, we can see that God, we can see what God has done and what he's doing. He's bringing his shalom through Jesus's life, death and resurrection as he applies it to his people and all creation by the Holy Spirit. So the elders, the pastors, the leaders, they have a responsibility to care for the members of the community who are particularly unwell. But prayer for healing is something that we all get to do as we together come before God and ask him to do what he's already promised, to piece back together the broken pieces of our lives and our bodies and to bring his shalom to those among us who are sick. And where we see God heal, be it in a physical or spiritual or a relational sense, we get to be witnesses to the power of the gospel And the Spirit. And just as we've had the opportunity to share in the brokenness of our brothers and sisters, we also get to share in the joy of their healing to the glory of God. And as we read chapter 5 of James, it's hard for us to read his closing words without also seeing the way in which he connects suffering and sickness with sin. You see, James wants us to be honest. He wants us to pray for healing and he wants us to confess our sin. So if we frame um, speaking the truth about our sin in the context of God's vision for health and healing and shalom, then confessing and dealing with our sin makes sense because sin, like suffering and sickness, is a tearing apart of the goodness that God originally intends. If we look to back to Isaiah 53:5, the word transgressions there, it describes thoughts and words and actions which fracture our relationship with God and others. Bonhoeffer put it this way in his chapter on confession in Life Together. He says this, the person who is alone with their sin is utterly alone. Sin works in us to tear apart, to divide, and to isolate us. And so just as prayer for healing seeks God's restoration and wholeness, speaking the truth about our sin to one another seeks to have our relationship with God and others made whole again. James knows that only confessing our sin before God, it's not enough. And so he also encourages us to confess our sin to each other, 
and to pray for each other so that we might be made whole. And we should confess where we've sinned against each other. And we should also seek, as James says, to lovingly turn one another back to the truth of the gospel when we see our brother or sister going astray. And God intends to work through the brokenness of our sin and our imperfect relationships to bring about the flourishing and the shalom of his people for his glory. So what's happening in that moment when a few of us come before God and confess our sin? Well, Bonhoeffer, he he points us to the cross. See, there at the cross is the public humiliation and death of a sinner. At the cross, sin dies a public death. And at the cross, we die to sin publicly too. And so when we honestly confess our sins to our brothers and sisters, We are taking up our cross, dying to our pride, saying no to fear and shame. And we nail our sin to that cross and we let it hang there and we let it die publicly before our brothers and sisters as they stand beside us and proclaim to us the gospel that by Jesus's life and death and resurrection, God's love and forgiveness and acceptance are ours and he is making all things whole again. See, in that moment of confession, we remind one another that through Jesus and by the Spirit, God is making all things new, even us. And when God and the cross of Christ are at the centre of our confession, then we are set free from the fear of shame and rejection. And the cross, it frees and humbles those of us who hear a confession from a brother or sister too. Because only someone who has known the humiliation and power of the cross can freely receive and love their brother or sister without judgment. Only someone who knows the power of the cross can speak the gospel to their brother or sister and pray for God to make them whole. And so, family, we can speak out the truth honestly because Jesus suffered humiliation and rejection for us. We can pray for each other's healing and confess our sin to one another because we trust that God is the God who heals, the God who stitches back together every tattered piece of our lives. And that he will make all things whole again, even us.